Do was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2016th January Leaders Retreat, with Stefan Lutz, who ministers at Penn State, and Eric Lonigan. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. Thank you, Zach, for leading us in worship and the rest of the team. I feel like that sets a good tone for this weekend for uh, the direction we're headed, so I appreciate that worship and those songs. Um, just to set the context a little bit, I just wanted to uh, do a brief introduction for Steve here. Uh, my campus team read this book right here. So a book that just got handed out, I believe, is your second book. This was his first college ministry in a post-Christian culture. Uh, anybody attend my seminar at the conference over? Okay, so there's a number of you in here. So a lot of the, that was inspired by this book here. Uh, there was a lot of content that our St. Cloud State staff team read through that really helped us how to know how to navigate conversations um, about Jesus with people all over the spectrum. And I don't want to get too into it because that's what Steve is going to come up here and do. But I, I really felt uh, incredibly helped by this book. I think Steve loves Jesus. He loves the gospel. And so um, his ministry, what I gather from here and hearing him teach, really seems to be motivated by an overflow of love of Christ and not just raw, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of obedience. And I, I just love that kind of feel. Uh, and, and I think you're going to feel that from when Steve teaches. Um, on, a, on a lighter note, he told me uh, one little anecdotal thought to uh, introduce him. And, and so I'll let him, this is going to tee him up and he can finish this off. But one interesting fact about Steve is that he once and, and to my knowledge, you didn't, you weren't on the field as a D1 playing. Oh no, he's a okay. Yeah. yeah, he's a spectator. <laughs> got kicked out of a Big Ten football game. So, um, based on all of that, I hope you are very eager to hear Steve come and right. teach. Why don't you guys give him a hand? Thank you, Eric. Yes, I was ejected from a. Uh, it was a Penn State Michigan game. I was a freshman in college. It was in. Uh, it was in. Uh, it was at Penn State, and we had had a huge snowstorm the night before, and so it was one of those snowstorms where they didn't have a chance to clean out the stadium in advance. So students all come in, and you know where the, the the here's like the bleacher, here's the bench which they had dusted off, but there's all this snow right under it, right? So what do, what do a bunch of college students do with a bunch of snow at your feet during a football game? You start making snowballs and you throw them, right? So we threw them, and so what we were really trying to do is reach down to the field to hit the Michigan players. Because <laughs> who likes Michigan, right? So uh, we, and we, and some people were succeeding, and that was kind of fun and interesting. I, where I was, I could not, I was like too far up to make it all the way down to the field, but as a true blue Philadelphia and Philadelphia Eagles fan, I saw a dude with a Dallas Cowboys jacket, <laughs> and I was actually trying to hit him. And so I had my arm up, and I had gotten a few off, but I had my arm here, and a security dude comes and grabs me and sends me out of the stadium, and that was that, and I had to watch the rest from the freshman commons, and that kind of stunk. So that was, that's my story of being ejected from a football game. Again, I don't recommend that, but uh, the grace of God at work, I don't think I would get ejected today. Um, Thank, thank you guys for having me. Uh, grateful for Eric and Paul and your leaders for, for having me here with you. We've had a good time. 
so far, despite what you think, your staff are pretty sharp. They're a pretty intelligent group, and we've had a good couple days together thinking these things through. Some of you are afraid to laugh at that joke that your <laughs> staff member might hear you or something. Um, we've, had, we've had a great couple days processing things, working through things together, and excited to share with you more tonight. Uh, so a little bit about me, so you know uh, where I'm from. So uh, Eric mentioned I wrote a couple books about reaching college students. I, I just love college ministry because I believe there is no more I believe God wants to do a great work on the college campuses because and, and and that involves you and so we're going to talk about our calling and what that looks like to reach our peers on the college campus because I believe in in terms of the kingdom of God there is no better place to be than on the college campus today I, I believe it's one of the most if you, if you think about missions it's a, it is the most strategic mission field in the world. And so you guys are incredibly positioned to you know, be God's agents of the kingdom in the places where he has put you. And it's an exciting thing. It's a great privilege. It's a great responsibility. And so we want to talk about what does that look like and how does that get worked out and how can we figure out how to do that better in walking with Christ. Um, myself, so, so I mentioned Penn State. I did my undergrad at Penn State, went to Philly for a few years, seminary, helped plan a church there. And uh, my wife and I, we met as undergrads at Penn State. We were one of those couples who, you know, we got married a month after graduation. And we've been married for over 16 years now. Came back to Penn State in 2008 to work with students. I'm now pastoring a church there that reaches a whole bunch of students uh, right across the street, right on College Avenue in a theater we, we meet and have several hundred Penn State students worshiping with us and a ministry to the campus there. Uh, in, in many ways, a lot of shared DNA with CO and what you guys are all about. And so feel very much a lot of commonality and, and feel very at, at home with you guys. Um, so Penn State is 45,000 students. And the town there, if you don't know your Pennsylvania geography, uh, it's right, you do? Are you from Pennsylvania? Yeah. Awesome. Where are you from? Uh, Slippery Rock. Slippery Rock. Okay. Yeah. So maybe two hours from there. Um, is is State College. And you're like, what a creative name for a town with a college in it. Well, it's, it's a classic college town. It grew up around the university. So, uh, so State College is there. And I remember one time I went to a conference. I, went, I was speaking at a conference, and they gave you, like, the pre-printed name tag with your name and your town. And I always want to look at that name tag to make sure, because my name is Steve Lutz, and sometimes that gets shortened to S. Lutz or sluts <laughs> and that's always awkward uh, especially with email addresses i've had to fight that in every organization i've been in like no my default email is not going to be sluts okay <laughs> it's not going to get through your spam filter for one <laughs> but this so they got the name right that was good uh <laughs> but the next thing i noticed that had not they had not done before is it, it said it said you know they said the town they said you know my church Calvary Church and then it said St period college now kind of used to that you know a lot of times when Penn State is written it's just written as Penn State St period but I, I usually don't see it written in terms of state college and I, but I didn't really think anything of it and then somebody said now this is this is in a state uh, it's not Pennsylvania not Minnesota. Uh, I won't tell you what state it is, but it starts with Kent and ends in Ucky. And so they were, this was, I was kind of exotic to them, I think. 
So somebody comes up to me and they look at my name tag and they said, oh, so where is, where is St. College? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, okay, oh, you're, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, are you, right? Uh, I said, it's actually, it's actually State College, State College, and I explained the whole thing. And they said, oh, okay, that's, that's helpful. And I thought, well, that was, that was kind of weird. I thought it would be kind of obvious. And then two, two other people asked me the same question. I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm like, I've never heard of a St. College have you ever heard of a saint named college? I'll just add, I've never heard of a saint named cloud either, right? A cloud is something in the air. I don't know. Oh, sore subject? Okay. Uh, but it got me thinking, okay, if there was a patron saint of college, who would that be? Who would, who would we, who would we, what's, what's that? St. Thomas. Okay. I think you might be biased. Uh, but who would be the patron saint of college? I, you you'd probably get different answers based on who you talk to, right? It's people who really value like the knowledge and the learning. You might get the image of like an Einstein type figure, you know, the harebrained professor cooking up brilliant theories and walking around absentmindedly. Or maybe it would be the jock. If if the way you think about college is, I, I love the sports, and you got the guy who's you know, he's got the, the football under one arm and the girlfriend on the other, and he's a star quarterback. Maybe that's your patron saint. Or maybe if college is one big party, you're thinking of John Belushi, and you're thinking of Animal House, or you're thinking of any number of college movies. And then we could, we could just do a survey of the college movies that you've watched and probably how that even shaped some of your perceptions and expectations of what college is. And, you, and, and every college movie always has, like, the jocks, and the nerds, right? And they have all, the, all these different groups and they're always fighting and then they, everybody's happy at the end, right? That's every college movie ever. But if, we, but if we thought about who the patron saint of college is, it would probably be someone like that. One of those categories. Maybe the animal house thing. Maybe the jock thing. Maybe the brilliant learned professor thing. And all that to say is, when we, when we think about our campus, when we think about the college experience... A lot of times we're bringing a whole host of expectations and, and a filter that we look at our campus through and we, we're not even conscious of it. Mike was, Mike was sharing earlier about uh, how this, this event for him as an undergrad and, uh, and the, the New Year's conference had a profound effect shaping the way that he looked at himself and his team and his whole college experience. And you know, I think at some point, as we seek to follow Jesus, seek to be faithful to the call, seek to be faithful disciples, one of the things that he wants to do is to reframe our perceptions, reframe the very way that we look at our university, our college, our, those that we're hanging out with, why we're there in class, what his purpose for us is, there is. You know, he wants to just reshape that. Give us new lens, new filters, new eyes to see that. Second uh, Corinthians five says that we regard you know, no one according to the flesh, or other translations say we don't, we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Our very perspective is changed, our outlook is changed towards the whole world because of Christ. And so, what I want us to do tonight is to think about how does our perspective towards our campus need to change? How does it need to shift? What new lenses, filters does God want to give us to look at our campus? And so to have that reshaped by the gospel, to change our perspective, here's, I want to suggest that 
God wants us to take a perspective outside the camp. Outside the camp. What do I mean by that? Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 13. Read a couple verses there. Hebrews 13, going to look at uh, 12 through 14. So this book, Hebrews, Hebrews is just an amazing book talking about the person and the work and the nature of Jesus Christ, all that he is, all that he has come to do. And as it ends, here in chapter 13, it's inviting us to just fix him in our gaze, to see all of who he is. And in verse 12, it says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Friends, to to walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus, let's consider some of what that means. To be a faithful follower of Jesus is going to mean, no, not that everything will go smoothly and easily. It will not mean that everybody will like you. In fact, Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. We were talking about that a lot, the, the staff earlier, about you know the cultural winds that are blowing. It means that increasingly to be a faithful follower of Christ means that more people will view you with, with suspicion, maybe even contempt, maybe even as dangerous. Sharing the gospel by some people is considered to be a microaggression or hate speech. Sharing your your genuinely held beliefs based on the scriptures is seen as dangerous and maybe even hateful. And you know what? We shouldn't be surprised. We We should, in fact, expect that because that's how Jesus was regarded as dangerous, disruptive, flat out wrong. Somebody who needed to be dealt with and put away. And so one of the perspectives that we need to increasingly take is, even as we're present in our campus settings, is that we also realize, you know what? I am, I am removed somewhat from the mainstream. I am removed from the same streams of thought that everybody else is buying into. And in fact, even if we're there physically, we realize that, with spiritual eyes, spiritual perspective through the lens of Christ, that we have been pushed more to the margins and pushed to the place of reproach, of disgrace. To follow Jesus means to to go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. The reproach that comes for people as we genuinely follow Christ. So, from that perspective, outside the camp, Bearing reproach and shame. What does, that, what does that look like? Well, I think, for one thing, we're going to start seeing our campus in a different light. And that means looking at our peers, our friends, our classmates, our roommates, and, and seeing them more from God's perspective. Closer to the way that He sees them. We don't regard them just from a worldly point of view. But one of the questions we're asking is, not, not even simply, does this person know Jesus or not? 
That, I mean, that is, that is the ultimate question from an eternal perspective, right? But we're even going beyond that to say, and, and how, how far are they from knowing Jesus? You know, people who study this, uh, missiologists and people who study different cultures, they say, listen, uh, to, to understand different cultures and people groups, one of the things we have to look at is that people sometimes by cultural distance and by convictional distance in terms of their belief systems, they may be farther or closer to what we regard as the gospel. So let me, let me sketch this out. It's a, it's a simple little, little drawing. Let's put this where you guys can see it. And a missiologist named Ralph Winter did some of this. But let's, okay, so let's say there's a a continuum here. And at this point is belief in Christ. Okay? You're there. That's your conviction. That's your belief. I I believe it. I've I've prayed the prayer. um, I'm growing in the word. That's my my conviction. Um, Now, let's draw a line. And, and put, we're going to put several points on here. Okay? And think of this as distance. And just for the sake of uh, simplicity, I'm going, to, I'm going to call this M0, M1, M2, M3, and M4. Okay, so M0 is... I get it. I'm on board. I believe. I've, I've put my life to it. Okay, uh, that's you're 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 there. I mean, you're you're here tonight, most likely because that's something that you've said. Uh, if, if that's something you're not sure about, I'm sure there's some people who'd love to talk to you. What's an M1? An M1 is somebody. Hey, you know what? Um, I haven't really put my faith in Christ personally, but in terms of like. Biblical ethics and morality, I don't have any big beef with that. Uh, in fact, I might even go to church. I might appear to be a, a very religious person. Uh, when you talk about Jesus stuff, I'm not, even, I'm not hostile to it. I'm not opposed to it. I'm pretty open to it. I might even come to some of your Bible studies. Okay? Uh, in fact, th- these are folks who um, they have a lot of the appearance of religion, but w- what they really need to hear about is stuff like, Hey, do you know you need to be born again? You know that your faith faith needs to become personal. Now there was a time in you know America not that long ago where if the vast majority of people, if they were not here, they were probably here. And so a guy like Billy Graham, former president of Northwestern, right? Where's my Northwestern people? Billy Graham could hold a crusade, and thousands of people would come, and Billy Graham would say, "Hey." I know you think you're a good person. I know you think you're a moral person. But do you know that unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not be admitted into heaven. And people would stream down the aisles because they realized he was right. And they didn't have any arguments with him about whether God exists or whether there's such a thing as sin or whether they, they were personally responsible for sin. They knew all that. And just being told that they need to be born again, they responded like crazy and that used to be like a huge portion of the population was right here is it safe to say that for most of you on your campuses especially places like like places like the u of m most of the people are not here right at least at my campus not many people are here 
The M2s, I call these folks the apatheists. Why do I call them? Well, because when it comes to stuff about God, they're apathetic. They could care less. They could not be bothered. They are far more interested in what's my next class, what's the party that's going on tonight, uh, who am I texting, who am I Snapchatting, who, what, all that kind of stuff. That's what they're interested in. They want to get a good job. They want to you know, do well after graduation. That's the stuff that they are thinking about, probably a more functionally materialist worldview not concerned all that much with the supernatural and this God stuff. And to them, you seem a little bit weird, maybe even like an alien because you're into all that Jesus stuff. And they don't even get it. And they're just kind of blah to, to the whole thing. And then three is somebody who might start being a little more suspicious, maybe even a borderline hostile. And they're going to say, oh, you're one of those Jesus people? Are you in one of those cults? Are you, are you one of those hate groups that doesn't accept the LGBT community? Right? They, they kind of start there. And then four is somebody who extremely hostile to the gospel. Believe, uh, like an atheist once told me, I believe that you religious people, you Christians, are the cause of all evil and should be wiped off the face of the earth. said that with a little twinkle in his eye, but I think he mostly meant it. Now, what does that look like? By the way, God can, God can save anybody anywhere on the continuum. What was, what was Saul who became Paul before he, he met uh, Christ on the road? Uh, you know, he, he, was, he was definitely here, right? He's like, I, I hate you. You're the worst. I'm going to kill all of you. And God transformed that on the road to Damascus. And God is doing that today in, in many places with Muslims, as, as we're hearing, which is really exciting. Now, if we thought about, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us to think, to view our campus, view our colleagues, our classmates, uh, our roommates, people in our dorm, on our floor, through a different lens. And one of these questions is, so where are they when it comes to Jesus and the gospel? Like, how open are they to it? Because... One of the things that we can think about is, you know what? I love, I love praying with people to receive Christ. I mean, that's just like my favorite thing. It is, so, it is such a blessing. I'm going to tell you a few stories about that tonight. But I just I love doing that. But sometimes we don't get to, to pray that prayer with somebody. You know what? Sometimes I think our work is, our work is maybe to take somebody who's out here and move them like a click or two that way. Because if we think about the, the agricultural model that Jesus gives us repeatedly when he talks about the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of God is like a seed that grows up. You know, what, you know what that means? That means that there's a lot of people who need to do the work of you know, tilling the soil and watering it. And there's a lot of people, when somebody comes to Christ, and people have studied this, when somebody comes to Christ, there's upwards of like 24, 25 people who have been faithful Christian witness in their lives. Did you know that? And you don't know if you're number 25 or number 17 or number 2. But you still have your role to play in the kingdom of God. And that, that means every interaction that we have is weighted with eternal potential. And you have the opportunity sometimes to help people move. It might be through your words. It might be through your actions. It might be what you're doing with, and not even realizing that they're watching you. And all they're wondering is, is this another hypocrite? Or does this person actually believe all this Jesus stuff? 
What, how do they live? What do they do when they think no one's looking? And yet your words and your presence and your witness can help move people along the way. And man, when you get to be person number 25, that's pretty awesome. Let's not grow weary in doing good because at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And sometimes we get to see people cross the line, but sometimes we're just helping them move here. Now, I find it extremely helpful to, to think about where people are coming from. And on my campus, and I bet for many of you, the people that you know, that the population would break somewhere like this. Okay? It's kind of an awkward bell curve, but you get the point. That the, that the vast majority of the population is not at the edges. Okay, so 45,000 people at Penn State, and we estimate maybe 1,000 or 1,200 are in regular Christian fellowship. So you see that. That means like the pool of people that we're trying to meet and trying to recruit from, if all we did is, is like you know, cater to the already churched, then we're not reaching a whole lot of the campus. My guess is your campuses, by the way, some of you are Christian schools, right? That doesn't mean that this doesn't apply. In fact, sometimes the church kid who was made to go to the Christian college against his wishes might, might be like all the way out here and have all the form of religion, but none of the life, none of the spirit, and he's actually pretty jaded, pretty turned off, and he can't wait to get out. And I've met far too many kids who went to Christian colleges who then describe themselves as post-Christian. Okay, so your Christian college is very much a mission field and often a tough one. Okay, so your, but your campus probably breaks down somewhere like this. And one of the questions we have to ask is, is the way that we live our lives and the way we do ministry, are we seeing everyone? And are we doing things that, that can reach out to everyone? You know, here, here's, an, here's another filter I want you to put on. That's, that's just a helpful, like, to ask this question, when I'm meeting somebody, when I'm talking with them, do some Sherlock stuff. You know, ask some questions to kind of deduce. I wonder where are they coming from. And it tells you a lot. It tells you kind of where that relationship can go in terms of introducing them to Christ. Here's another way to see it. How many student organizations do you have on your campus? How about, how about at the U? How many how many student organizations? Like a billion, right? Like about a thousand, right? Probably a little over a thousand. Same at our campus, right? Uh, some of you smaller schools, I bet you still have hundreds. Because why? Because there is a club for everything. Yeah, we're the um, crocheting while snowboarding club. We love it. It's awesome. It's three people, but they love it. Right? There is a club for everything. You know what the beauty of that is? You don't find this anywhere else in the world except you know, maybe the internet. But these are what what are these what, what are these clubs doing? They are self-organizing into basically what missiologists call people groups. And so when you want to so say you're say you are a Christian student and you say, you know what? I love crocheting while snowboarding. Guess what? Just like we say, there's an app for that, there's a club for that. And you know what God might be calling you to do? Be the missionary to that club. The university does this marvelous thing where it self-organizes into identifiable people groups and then they post where they meet and when. 
How easy is it, guys? It's like spoon-feeding it for you. Here they are. Here's the people who need Jesus. Go, befriend them, hang out with them, do what they're doing, and be a Jesus person to them. Share the good news as you befriend them. Love them, serve them, get to know them, pray for them. Get a meal with them, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just served right up for us. I think one of the, the tragedies of Christian groups is, and I don't know this is what, about what you guys do at all, but it's, it's like the, the pull, like the inertia of any Christian group is to pull inward, and we just end up hanging out with ourselves, and then we, ne- we kind of forget the, the other lost 98% because we're too busy doing all the Christian stuff. And you know what? You're on a tremendous mission field, and God says, hey, that, that thing that you love doing, there's probably some lost people who love doing that as well. Go, find them. Be, be my missionary. Be my messenger in that place. So we've had some fun with that, built, reaching out to uh, the, uh, the blue band, the marching band at our school through, through some students. And these are students who, because of their schedule, often don't end up connected at all to any Christian fellowship because they're always practicing, right? But meeting them on their turf, their time and place, we've seen tremendous fruit from that. So, this is, this is what we're trying to do in terms of seeing, okay, God, help me to see my campus with your eyes. And to see the, the lost people all around me and how I can uh, interact with them and engage them with the gospel. You know, one of the things, do, do people party at your, at your campus? Is there a little bit of partying? Again, the Christian college kids are, what do I, how should I answer that? Yes, but we don't talk about it. Um, honestly, I, I think most, I don't know anything about your two Christian schools, but most Christian colleges that I'm aware of, it's like everything that's at Big State U, but it's in many ways even more dangerous because it's all underground. Sometimes it's worse, you know? Like when stuff isn't in the light, man, it just gets worse. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of scary. So listen, I, I'm not assuming everybody's, yay, we love Jesus. Um, but so what does it mean in those places where there is, is a hearty partying atmosphere? What does it mean to be like the, the presence of Christ in those places? So that was like a big question for us at, at Penn State. Because there's a few different years where Princeton Review, I don't know how they tabulate this stuff, but they, they I think it's self-reporting, which is revealing, but they rated us as the number one party school. And man, when, when Penn State got that title, they wanted like to defend that like it was a national championship. Like that was a serious title to defend. They were going to prove, yes, we are in fact the number one party school. We are proud of it. That was the attitude. And uh, in fact, um, uh, This American Life did an entire hour-long episode about the party scene at Penn State. It was bonkers. And so, so this was like, this was a thing. And so as a ministry, we're, we were like, okay, so... So what do we do? How do we, how do we navigate this? This is such a dominant thing about life at Penn State. How do we handle this? On the one hand, to be in a lot of that scene, I mean, one, it's a, it's a huge temptation. For many of our students, it's a temptation to compromise. I'll just grab my red cup. I'll just have a few drinks. What's the big deal? Pretty soon I'm making poor decisions, and I'm certainly not being a witness for Christ, right? So there's that temptation on that side. On the other side is 
I'm not in that I'm not in that world at all. I'm not engaging it. I'm not there. I'm just playing boggle in my dorm room. And neither of those, no offense if you like boggle. But neither of those for our group as we wrestled with this it was like but that that doesn't feel like what Jesus is calling us to when we talk about be in the world but not of it. Cuz one is way is in the world and of it. And the other option was not in the world, not of it. So how do we be in the world? So, so what, we, what we basically said was, you know, I think we need to figure out how to throw a better party and to do that without alcohol. So what we, what we started doing, and I was telling the, the staff this earlier today, but what we started doing was we, we had a ministry house where some of our staff lived right in the heart of downtown where everybody's going to, to the frat parties and all that. And so about 11 o'clock at night, we would start grilling. We got the monster grill from the church, and we bought hundreds of hot dogs. And we just started grilling up all these hot dogs, and we, we, we started giving them away. And we got floodlights, and we got a booming sound system, and we, and we just brought as many people as we could, and we basically created this party atmosphere. In fact, people would just roll in, you know, after pre-gaming or after going from one party to another, and they, were, they, were, they thought there was another party here. And they would often hang out for a while before figuring out there was no keg, Right? <laughs> Oh, these are just those weird Christian people. But they were having a good time. And so a lot of times people would like, they, they thought they were going to go to this other party down here, and they would never leave. They, they would just hang out with us for the rest of the night. And you know what happened? Well, one thing that happened was the cops got called. That was awesome. That was actually a goal. I said, guys, our goal this year is to have the cops uh, get called on us because the party's that good. Happened twice. So, mission accomplished. <laughs> but what, one of the things that we did was our, our students were figuring out, okay, like, here, I'm, I'm figuring this out. I'm actually in this world, but I'm not of it. And we've had, I mean, we've had some incredible conversations with people. I've, I've stood there. One of the things that's kind of marvelous about people who have a little bit of alcohol in them is that they just start opening up. And you guys know this. This is why sometimes... Friday night, Saturday night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. is some, sometimes the best time to have some spiritual conversations. And people start opening up to you, and they start telling you things that they would never tell you when they're sober. And a lot of times, they actually even remember it. And so we were having some amazing conversations and grabbing contact info, and one of the best things that happened for our students was that they, were, you know, they would see somebody from class. And on Monday... They'd say, hey, weren't you at that? Weren't you at Jesus Hot Dogs? That's what it became known as, Jesus Hot Dogs. <laughs> and, we had a, and we had a Twitter handle for that uh, for a while. Um, and so people would like, like we would tweet like, hey, hot dogs are about ready. And people would come streaming. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> and it was, it just, it was this, it was this marvelous, um, it was this marvelous way of engaging with the party scene in a way that we had never done, in a way that they didn't expect. And everybody always wanted to pay. And it was, that was actually like, this is a total Jesus juke, but it was like, hey, you can't, it's free. You can't earn it. You can't buy it, right? It's like grace that way. Yeah. You know, but they're like, no, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and so that's just, it's like a super simple way to be present. That's something that we figured out in our context I invite you like, to use some holy imagination to ask, what does it look like on our campus? 
What does it look like to surprise people with the good news of the gospel on our campus? What does it look like to be present and in our world but not of it in a way that leads to more gospel opportunities? Um, all right. How, much, how, how are we doing? How much time do I have? We good? We good? All right. So uh, here's, here's one of the other things. This Hebrews passage that I started with, it talks about bearing the reproach that Christ endured. Now listen, everything is not always happy and fun like giving out Jesus hot dogs. And you guys know this. And, and I'm guessing in this room, some of you have felt the cost of owning your, your Christian convictions. You have felt some of the pain of that. Maybe, maybe you've had a particular class where you felt like the professor had it out for you. My wife had one of those. It was a philosophy class. And as soon as you know she let her Christian convictions be known, she just felt like the professor wanted to make her you know, work extra hard and nothing was ever going to be good enough. And I've talked to many students over the years, similar thing. When I was an undergrad, I wrote for our school newspaper. And this is when people actually read newspapers. So it's kind of important. It's kind of a big deal. And I wrote an opinion column, and I did that always from a Christian perspective except one where I complain about TAs who don't speak English. Uh, but every other column, every other column dealt with faith somehow. And I remember, I, I kind of knew this intellectually, but not. I didn't really know it till I experienced, like the, I would get so many angry emails for every column that was written, like dozens and dozens of people who were just like, you're horrible, you're the worst, you're an idiot, you're a fool. And the angry letters to the editor, that, that was even worse because they would get published and other people would read them. And I remember, you know, in class, because my, my headshot was next to the column. So I'm in class and people are giving me dirty looks and saying weird comments. And I'm like, this kind of stinks. <laughs> and yet, you know, so I, just a small taste of, of the reproach that Hebrews is talking about here. And yet at the same time, I saw God do some pretty cool things through that column. I remember the first column I wrote was about abortion and about, like, hey, what true tolerance means that we can disagree about this. And also, I believe that there's grace, even for those who have gone through with abortion. I remember I got this email from this girl who had had an abortion and was struggling incredibly with the guilt and regret of that. And that led to me actually meeting up with her. And I got to share the gospel with her. And just saw like the, the tears coming down her face as she thought about what grace and forgiveness and redemption could mean for her. Uh, even though she had gone through with that. And that was like a completely new concept. And like, what a, what a great opportunity. And so for you... Many of you have gone through this or will go through this, that there will be a cost relationally, academically, some kind of opportunity uh, for following Christ. But here's one of the things I think is beautiful about that. When we bear the reproach of Christ, that positions us to uniquely understand, sympathize, and come near to others who are struggling with disgrace and reproach and shame you know how we're always talking about how in the gospels hey you know who loved jesus the tax collectors and the whores must mean jesus loves big sinners right 
and they love him. And that's absolutely true. But I think sometimes we emphasize, like, isn't it crazy? Like, they were, they were such big sinners. And we kind of forget that in their context, they themselves felt tremendous shame. They were truly outcasts of society. They were walking around with this tremendous load of shame on them all the time. And it wasn't just that they, like, sinned really badly. It was that they also walked around with that sense of shame all the time. And so Jesus who was a man of sorrows, a man who felt reproach, they saw in him somebody like them. But that he wasn't controlled by and ruled by it. They saw something, they saw here's a guy who's, he's bearing all kinds of reproach, but he's got something I don't have and I want to be around that guy. And so friends, when, when God calls us to bear some of the disgrace and some of the reproach that comes with following Christ, Look for other people who are struggling in shame and disgrace so that you can come alongside them and bring the good news to them. I remember a guy I knew named Eric. Eric had three alcohol violations in his first semester. He was uh, suspended by the university. Smart guy, a lot of potential, but he was basically told, you are suspended for a year through judicial affairs, they told him. You're suspended for a year. You've got to go home to Massachusetts. You probably won't ever come back. And I met him through some other students that I knew, and they said, you really got to reach out to this kid. He's really struggling. And I met with him, and he went back to, we had had a great conversation about faith, and then he had to go home to Massachusetts. And he, he came back. He ended up, you know, basically like for good behavior. He was admitted back a semester early. And he started doing a whole bunch of stuff. To, he like helped start an AA chapter for students, and he helped do some other stuff to help students struggling with alcohol abuse. And he worked his butt off, and I could see in him, and we were meeting, but he wasn't professing any kind of faith, really. In fact, he was, he was basically like a general, God's out there, higher power stuff. He became a Penn State cheerleader, which is kind of like a high. But I, in all of that, in all of his efforts, I saw him trying to somehow erase the shame that he felt he carried. And I met with him for, for gosh, probably two and a half years. And it was, only, it was only after he graduated that he finally gave his life to Christ. But what I saw in that guy was a guy who was still wrestling with shame and was so thrilled when finally the gospel broke through. And he understood who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him and surrendered his life to Christ uh, right, right after graduation. It was an awesome scene. And friends, God will bring across your path people wrestling with shame and disgrace for whatever they're going through maybe their own failures maybe family of origin stuff maybe maybe that's part of your story a lot of times god brings people to us who have a similar story as we do and the comfort that you've received from god in something is meant to overflow from you to others suffering from the same thing second corinthians one so god is going to bring people into your path struggling with some of the same stuff that you have found hope in and so that what you've received from Christ is not meant only for you. It's meant to be shared and passed on to other people who also need it. So one of the things to ask as you look at your campuses, God is changing your, your lenses, your filter, is saying, you know what, I know I have a sense of what God has been doing in me, and that's probably a good clue about what He wants to do through me. And so who are you seeing like that? And who is He bringing across your path? And it all starts really, with experiencing 
the grace and the power and the healing that comes through Christ. And as we bear His reproach, we also receive His comfort. It's a beautiful thing. And some of you, I know that's, that's your story. That's why you're here. Um, one more thing. Hebrews says that, it says, Therefore let us go to Him outside the camp. And I think that plural is really important. Let us go. This whole, like, let's be an agent of God's kingdom. Let's be a missionary to our campus. This is not an individual endeavor. This is something we're meant to do together. This is something that we are meant to do as a team. The whole, the whole Christian life thing, the whole living your life on mission, the whole let's reach your campus thing, you cannot do that alone. You should not try this alone. This is meant to be done in connection with others, on team with others. Uh, you, you, you ha- you're part of a group. You're part of a body. And so God wants us to do that as a team. And so it's amazing sometimes how God works these things out. But you, you guys use the phrase divine appointment. You know what we mean by that? When it seems like, you know what, I didn't have this plan, but God sure did. God was orchestrating something that I wasn't even aware of. And I just kind of showed up and realized I'm in a divine appointment right now. They're awesome. I, I, I love that. Uh, so one of these experiences I had that really illustrated the power of this. So a few years ago, the president came to speak at, at Penn State. And I'd never seen like a, a live president give a speech before. And I thought, this is this would be pretty cool, but I don't have the patience to wait in line to get the tickets because they were like a pretty good ticket and everybody wanted one. So... Uh, but one of my friends had scored an extra ticket, and so he calls me up the night before, and he says, would you like to go to this event where the president is speaking? And I said, yes, absolutely, I would, I would love to. So I showed up the next morning, and if you've ever been to see the president or somebody like super important speak, it's a huge ordeal. Like you got to show up three hours early just so they have time to pass everybody through all the security stuff, the metal detectors, the Secret Service agents, and they were only letting maybe a couple thousand in to our old basketball arena uh, in the bleachers there. And it was, so, you know, we're standing outside in the cold. You know, President couldn't come when it was warm out. We had to stand out in the cold and for, for hours. And you're basically like locked in position with the people who are right around you in line. And so uh, I end up, this, this, uh, this girl standing in front of me, uh, Asian girl, I was guessing... Uh, that she was an international exchange student. We exchanged some small talk, I think just like name and, you know, what are you studying, like the, the usual kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, she was an international student from mainland China, and she was excited to see the, the president speak. And so, so we get in there, uh, go through, and that, and, that, and that was it. And then we get in there, and, and we're sitting in the bleachers waiting for the president because, like, we, we went through the security, and then we're sitting there for even longer, and he's late, of course, and so we're, we're just sitting there, packed into the bleachers, you know, like this, for probably a good hour. And so, so her name's Chelsea, was her English name, and we, and we just start talking, and, uh, and then, you know, more small talk, and then we're sitting there, and everybody's still kind of waiting and bored and checking their phones and whatnot, and so, so Chelsea pulls out a Gospel of John, and she's reading the Gospel of John, and she is reading John 3. And she is actually reading like John three sixteen. 
And I'm like, this is being teed up for me ridiculously. And so I said, so, so I noticed you're reading uh, John. I said, what do you think of that? And she said, oh, I don't, I don't really understand this. And I said, well, good news, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so what are some of your questions? How could, I, how could I answer this? And she said, well, she said, well, I have a lot of questions. And uh, she said, so, so this is a story, right? I said, yes, it's, it's a story. I believe it's a true story. And she said, well, I think, she said, I, here's my question. Does it dishonor the God if I read it as just a story? And I said, okay, I've never gotten that question before. That's, that's interesting. I said, well, I think the story was written to get you to think. It was written to get you to ask why so many people believe that it's true. That is what John says about why he wrote that gospel, right? Uh, to, so, to, to prove why Jesus had come. And so she said, um, so that led to more questions. And she had all these questions about God and is Jesus God? And, you know, I showed her some of the I am statements later in John in terms of Jesus' claims to be John. And, and at one point she said, so this says Jesus is God, but what's the point? Like, why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? And I said, I said, imagine that, imagine that if you were God, would you do it this way? Would you reveal yourself and try to save the world this way? I said, why, why, do you, why would God do it this way? And that got her thinking about more questions. And clearly she was, this was all a big head scratcher to her. Because I talked about the difference between faith and the gospel and religion. And all of that was a new concept to her because she grew up in communist China. Like religion is not something that she had a a tremendous familiarity with. And she was really tracking with all of this. And we we did talk about John 3.16. And it was this, you know, probably talked for a solid half hour. And, uh, and, And meanwhile, we're packed all together. So there's all these people. I could tell that there were people all in our little radius who were listening to the whole conversation which kind of made it cool. So, so we were talking about the significance of the cross and, uh, and had, a, had a great conversation. And then the president showed up and uh, the conversation came to an end. But after the president's speech, we exchanged emails. And I met up with her again after that. And one of the things I discovered afterwards is that she had had some previous conversations with some of the people doing international student ministry at my campus. That's where she'd gotten the Gospel of John. She'd even visited my church a couple times. But her familiarity, I said, I said, yes, yeah, sometimes I preach there. And she said, what is preach? Right? This was her level of familiarity. But I found out, and, and we had a couple great meetings, and then she left town for the summer, and I wasn't able to uh, follow up with her a whole lot. But that whole episode, I felt like I was Philip dropped down talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, Bible open, ready to have the gospel conversation. Tremendous things happen. You know what I found out here? Two things about the whole team thing. One is that not only had people gone before me to have that conversation with Chelsea, there were people after me. And I found out through a friend of mine that uh, some months later that Chelsea did finally give her life to Christ. And that was awesome. And the other thing I found out was that my friend Brian, who gave me the ticket to the president's speech in the first place, that he had, he was like, I, I can't go, 
And he had been, he'd prayed like, Lord, is there somebody in particular you want me to give this ticket to? And that I had come to mind. And I thought, man, that's like divine appointment written all over it. Like the sovereign God knew that Chelsea was going to be here and that I would be here. And she'd pull out that gospel of John and we'd have that conversation. And whether, you know, maybe I was person number 20 out of 25, but I got to be a little part of her story of coming to faith in Jesus. And so sometimes, friends, you might be in the moment and you don't even know that there's this whole team that have been praying for and investing in this person, but you just do your part and you see what God's going to do. And so this is, sometimes we see the team, sometimes we know the team, sometimes, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But we, we do our part and we be faithful to God and what He calls to us in that moment, in that place, with that person, and we see what God does. It's a beautiful thing when you get to be a part of that. I'll tell you what, pray for some divine appointments. They're the best. Uh, let, me, let me just close with this. The last, the last thing the author of Hebrews says is that we do not have an enduring city here, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And sometimes in the college years, it is, it is hard to think beyond, right? In fact, it's a little scary to think beyond college because that means like real life and jobs, and bills, and paying off your loans, and all that kind of stuff, and growing up, and having to be responsible, whatever that means. But the author of Hebrews invites us to fix our gaze even farther, and saying, you know what? These things will pass. What we should long for is to know more of Christ, and to long for His kingdom to come, and also to bring as many people with us as we can. Because the future that God is, invi- is promising, the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the city that is to come, is glorious. It is beautiful. It is perfect. It is it's heaven. And when we ponder what that is, when we think about what all that means, it's a tremendous incentive to say, you know what? I want to bring as many people with me as I can. And every day is an opportunity to introduce people to that king. By the way, the king of the campus is Jesus. <laughs> Not a rock, paper, scissors guy. The king of the campus is Jesus, and so we want to see his lordship and his sovereignty displayed in that place. Because he is bringing, as great as your campus is, as great as the college years can be, there's a better city to come. And that's what we long for and pray for and seek to be agents of. So let me pray for us, and we'll take some reflection time. Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who went outside the camp. You are the God who bore reproach and disgrace, and you did that for us. And Jesus, we we confess it's hard to think about doing that. We feel the cost, we feel the weight of that, but we know that following you is going to mean some hard things. It's going to mean some sacrifices. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. It's going to feel costly, and yet it's good. It's good. And we want to be a part of what you're doing. And we thank you that you have called us. You've called each person here, not only to know you, but to make you known on their campuses. And so I pray that we would be faithful to that call and introduce you to people who don't know you yet. And that we would be, that we would live and speak like you on our campuses, 
And give us, give us new eyes to see people the way you do. And to see people not from a fleshly perspective, but the way you see it, the way you see them. And I pray that you would make us uh, fruitful, effective missionaries in this place. Thank you that this, this call that you give us, you also empower and equip us to do it by your spirit, by your word, and together in a body. And so, Jesus, we, we believe that we, we can't do this alone, but we believe that together as a body and with your spirit empowering us, greater things than we can imagine are possible. And so I pray for a semester of great fruit for my friends here at CO and Minneapolis area. And I pray that they would see your kingdom extended through them. And lost people come to know you. And people who know you, but in a, in a casual or lukewarm way, are much deeper, much richer. So, Lord, you, you know what that looks like for every person here. Draw us closer to you and to your purpose for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.